This is Stacey Hillier, and you are listening to the Prophetic Collective Podcast. Hey, listeners, you're about to hear a message from Stacey that was preached at Numa Church, Melbourne City location. Don't forget to like, hit subscribe for updates, and connect further with Stacey by visiting Stacey's website, stacyhillier.com, and checking out her book, Worship Is. We pray you are super blessed by this special episode. I want to talk to us today about beholding and becoming. When you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Just two verses today, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 to 18. Apostle Paul writes, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You know, most of us in this room would be very familiar with the hymn or the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Who knows that song, right? It's been blessing generations. What is a little less known is the story behind the song. It was actually written by a woman whose name was Helen Lemel. She was born in 1864. She was a very gifted musician, a songwriter. She travelled on the gospel music circuit of her day. She was an American woman who studied in Germany, intense vocal training for four years, married a German man, moved back to the United States, was teaching in seminaries and doing the gospel tour thing, right? And then early in her 40s, tragedy struck. She got very, very ill. And this illness actually left her blind. And in this state where she was already processing so much, her husband decided he didn't actually want to take care of a blind woman and he left her. So abandoned and with this new reality facing her, she would sit at a piano and she would feel her way across the notes. And she would have friends come and record the notes and record the lyrics. She wrote close to 500 hymns this way. She died when she was 97 years old. And one of her most well-known hymns was Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Now, remarkably, she wrote this song after she went blind. So here we have a woman who was physically blind, but her spiritual insight has been encouraging generations and still encourages us today to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Though blind, she discovered a secret that what we behold shapes our lives. You see, if she'd beheld only the issues she faced, she risked becoming a bitter person. But because she learned the art, the delight, the joy, of turning the eyes of her heart and her affections towards Jesus, she had something authoritative to impart to even us today. You see, we are all born looking for a face to tell us who we are. We're all born looking for a face to tell us who we are. 
You know, there's some scientific studies that have been done on newborns. And did you know that just seven hours out of the oven, those little newborns are starting to look around, trying to make eye contact with people. The reason they're doing this is because they're created, they have this innate thing within them that's looking to create strong relational bonds. And the way science tells us we do this is face-to-face interaction. By just two days old, these newborns actually prefer faces, eyes that look back at them. They'll scan past those who aren't making eye contact with them and they'll lock eyes with the ones who are. By four months of age, the people who have locked eyes with them for the greatest length of time are embedded in the relational centre of their brain more deeply for life. Think about who it is that a newborn most looks at. The mother and the father, those whose DNA it's created in. Babies are born with the subconscious desire to seek a face to tell them who they are. Now let's think biblically biblically for a moment about Adam and Eve. We all know the story, but let's think about it for a minute. Father God incarnate is bent over the earth. He's forming Adam's body from dust. He breathes his ruah, his breath into Adam. What would have been the first thing Adam saw? God's face. Then he puts Adam into a deep sleep. He removes one of his ribs. Again, he bends low over the earth. He forms Eve from the dust. He breathes his breath of life, his pneuma, his ruach into her. What would have been the first thing Eve saw? God's face. Genesis 1, 27 says, let us create man and woman in our image, in our salem. They were born looking to the face who would tell them whose image they were created in, who they were. And we all know the story that sin breaks this union and where they once lived with their faces towards God, we find them hiding their face from God in shame behind a tree. So they're driven out of the garden and so they lose that access to his face. This actually broke God's heart. And so spoiler alert for all of you, the rest of Scripture, one of the main narratives right throughout Scripture, points towards, gives a glimpse of, is prophesying to, or is directly about the restoration of face-to-face intimacy and relationship, where we are able, once again, to look to a face to tell us who we are. Let's think about Moses Moses was a man who caught a revelation of something more than God's people were currently experiencing. In Exodus 19 and 20, it's a couple of my favourite chapters, we read about one of the most epic corporate encounters in all of Scripture. We've got the Israelites, the 12 tribes, they're wrapped around the base of Mount Sinai, facing inwards when God's presence comes because God's people have always been designed to live with presence at the centre of everything. And here, as they're looking, as they're gazing towards the mountain, God's presence comes. The mountain is wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended in fire. The mountain trembled. It was like an earthquake, a trumpet sound that kept on getting louder. And God spoke to Moses and His voice sounded 
like thunder. Now the people at the sights and sounds of God's presence coming down, they freaked out a little. I can kind of understand, right? If all this was going on, it would be slightly freaky. And so they said to Moses, we're actually gonna stand back. They stood back from what was happening. And yet Moses, the word tells us, felt the fear and stepped into a thick darkness. In other words, he stepped into the unknown. What's really important that we notice in this corporate encounter is that Moses felt the fear and stepped in and he was transformed. The people felt the fear, fell back and became deformed in a way. Because they actually created a golden calf to worship. Why? We're created, looking for a face to tell us who we are. We're created to worship. We're created for face-to-face intimacy. So when we don't have the real thing, we will create counterfeits. Now, this was God's people. Wasn't the Philistines? Wasn't the people who God hadn't chosen? This was the representation of the church, God's people for that day. That chose to step back in fear and create counterfeits to worship. You see, if we choose not to encounter the real thing, we too will create counterfeits. Think about that for a minute. In Exodus 33, 11, we read that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, like a man speaks with his friend. I don't have time theologically to unpack that this doesn't literally mean that Moses and God looked at each other's faces, right? So when I talk today about gazing at the beauty of Jesus, you may not necessarily see a nose or eyes or facial hair like you've seen in The Chosen. We're talking about beholding the glory of who God is. We're talking about gazing at who He is and His character. So I'm gonna refer to that as His face. So Moses would come out of these encounters and the skin of his face would shine. Now ladies, this was pre-Mac. This was pre-Nas. This was pre-Maybelline. It was like, "Mm, you wanna get your glow on? You better behold the Lord. So Moses would go into his presence and he would come out. The Hebrew says that he glowed with supernatural beams of light is what it literally means. In other words, he took on the composition of God himself. Isn't that wild? And Moses recovered in part something that Adam and Eve forfeited. Now I want you to think with me for a moment about our all-time favourite Pentecostal passage. You know what I'm talking about, Acts 2, right? Here they are in Acts 2 in an upper room and commentators tell us that they were probably reciting Exodus 19. So they place these passages beside one another and I'm gonna do that for a moment too. So here they are in the upper room reciting Exodus 19. Remember what was happening? Fire, sound, shaking, and it begins to happen as they're reciting it. Fire, wind, sound. Now the gift of God in Exodus 19 and 20 was the Torah, the law. The gift from God in Acts 2 was the Holy Spirit. In the Exodus encounter, 
Because while Moses was up on the mountain receiving Torah, they created a golden calf and worship. Moses comes down, he smashes the tablets. I can feel my guy. I probably would have too. And he's like, right, how are we gonna fix this? Who's gonna help me? We have to do what's right before the Lord. The Levites come and they say, Moses, we'll be your guys. And so he says, get a sword and go and kill everyone who worshipped. 3,000 men were lost on that day. How many were added to the church in Acts 2? 3,000. So in these mirror passages, Father God was restoring something was lost when the people stood back in fear but he was upgrading it with the Holy Spirit. And Paul is actually talking about this in our passage, this upgrade from law to spirit. You see, Moses desired encounter with God more than he feared the unknown. And he lived a life that teaches you and I today that we behold what we desire and we become what we behold. Another way of saying that is what you truly desire, you will look at. And you will also live in the fruit of what you turn the eyes of your heart towards. There was another Old Testament man. And if I could have a request, Lord, in front of the witness of my church family, I want time with this man in heaven. He was a man who was known for his desire, in touch with his desire, He was a man known as the man after God's own heart. I am, of course, speaking of King David. It says, King David wrote in Psalm 27, 4, one thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. In other words, to behold. This was David's desire more than any other thing to gaze at the Lord. You know, when David was king, he did not think of himself, nor did he expect anybody else in his kingdom to think of him as the most magnificent person in the kingdom. David gave his life to make sure that God was seen as the most magnificent person under his rulership. God seeks those kinds of hearts again, not where we build our own kingdoms and need to be the main authority in the kingdom, but where we give our lives to make sure He is seen as the most magnificent King. Acts calls David a prophet. I personally believe This is just a personal belief of mine from studying King David's life that he had a vision similar to John because what David actually put in place was a glimpse of what risen Christ revealed to John the disciple whom Jesus loved or John the revelator or John the evangelist in Revelation 4, 5 where it describes what worship will be like and the new heaven and the new earth. Well, David put it in place before Jesus even walked the earth. David brought the ark into Jerusalem. Now think for a moment, remember Moses under instruction from God had veils in place, curtains in place, sacrifices. Only the priest could access the Holy of Holies. But David, very new in his kingship, who makes a statement, 
We did not have the ark under the ministry, the kingship of Saul, but I'm gonna make God the main thing again. His presence is gonna come back to the centre of His people. So He brings the ark into Jerusalem and He puts it into a tent. No veils, no curtains, and not just the priests could access the presence, the whole nation could once again see the presence of the Lord, which is exactly what Revelation 4 and 5 describes. So He established using about $6 billion today of his own money, 24-7 worship and prayer with singers and musicians where intercessors gazed at the Lord and responded. Do you know that more than half of our Psalms today were written in that setting? They didn't get together in a songwriting room in Nashville. They saw the presence of the Lord and they just responded out of the overflow of their heart. And David put in place scribes, just like Helen Lemel had, and other people who knew how to turn the eyes of their heart towards the Lord. And then they wrote it down for these ministers who were there only to minister to the Lord. And those songs discipled a nation and they still disciple us today. This is why he was a man after God's own heart because he actually caught a glimpse of what the Father desired and what the Father had lost. Lost in the garden, lost when the people stepped back out of fear. David catches a glimpse of God's heart because they share the same heart. And he puts this in place where everyone can access presence once again. You know that if he is not our greatest desire, we will not behold him. And then we will ultimately not become like Him. And if we're not becoming like Him, it means we're not beholding Him. And then let's follow the trail all the way back. We have to begin with the Holy Spirit to awaken God-given desires and start to say no to the world's desires. We have suppressed desire because it has led at times to sin. You have desire because God gave it to you to draw you like a magnet back to His heart. We have to trust the finished work of the cross and have a bigger revelation of that and the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in our lives than we trust in the bigness of our own sin and fallenness. Because God provided a solution and we must live like He has. I believe the Lord wants to awaken true desire in the church once again. David awakened desire. I actually believe that there have been some misdirected desires that the world lives its life by that have snuck in under the radar into the church. And I want to shed a bit of light on them today. Because actually, from really good people, right? We love the Lord. All of us in here, we love the Lord. But we do have to constantly with the Holy Spirit, ask Him to examine our hearts and highlight to us where we've come one degree off because one degree, one degree, one degree, we're walking in a completely different direction. So maybe, just maybe the Lord might highlight a few of these for you today because otherwise we're Romans 12 upside down. We're in the church more conformed to the world than transformed by the renewing of our mind. So here's a few maybes. Our world has an insatiable desire for entertainment. 
So if we come into the house to be entertained rather than to encounter, we stunt and put a cap on our transformation. Nobody's gonna get transformed by amazing entertainment. You might have an emotional experience, but you will not be transformed. We are transformed by beholding Jesus. What about the desire for God's benefits over just desiring to behold Him? You know, we're all about in our new job, and it's not wrong. I'm just pointing out the culture of our world. What benefits will I get? I've got friends with benefits, jobs with benefits, 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 benefits. And if we're not careful, we can come to church for benefits. Now, does he love to give good gifts to his children? Of course, he's a good father. But when our intention is to come for benefits instead of coming to behold, we will be transformed not into the image of Jesus, but into the image of a consumer. You know, often we rate and review the goods and services we receive in the world. So if we come to church and we rate the spiritual goods and services from church leaders, it can actually prevent us from stepping into face-to-face intimacy ourselves. You can't be transformed through my journey. I can't be transformed through yours. We've all got to have our own. Now, we're here to encourage one another, cheer one another on, share our well-worn pathways, and to celebrate as we get transformed. When we look at one another and we're like, whoa, you look more like Jesus than six months ago. Like, how good is that? That's the ultimate thing when we see that in people, people becoming like Jesus. Derek Prince, absolute all time, says, you can join the church and not be changed. You cannot meet Jesus and not be changed. I have a desire that's being awakened, that there will be a day where you cannot come to church and not be changed because the church comes into a revelation. I'm here to behold him. So if people come into this room, they're gonna come smack, bang, face up with God himself. So now passage, Paul puts it this way. We all with unveiled face. He's referencing a couple of things here. He's referencing, you know, Moses would get his Mac glow on, but totally natural, supernatural. He would come out with his glory. He'd put a veil over his face because everyone was like, whoa, Moses, that's too confronting and we don't wanna go into the presence. So don't carry it too heavily because that's, that's a bit much for us. So he would put a veil on. So Paul is referencing this, the law, removing the veil, the veil of their hearts. But he's also referencing when Jesus hung on a cross and gave up his life that the curtain in the temple to the Holy of Holies was torn top to bottom. In other words, we have access unveiled back to -to face-to-face relationship through the work of Jesus. So he's referencing this when he says, we all with unveiled face, no obstacles. Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, Apostle Paul, if we asked him the question, Apostle Paul, you did a pretty good job. Wrote, you know, a lot of the New Testament. I rate it. (laughs) What was your discipleship theology? This is it. Behold and become. Now, Paul, we know from the New Testament and Scriptures, actually sat at the feet of a rabbi whose name was Gamaliel. He was on the Sanhedrin, which means he was a big-time rabbi. So Paul learnt from the best. 
And yet he learned a lot of knowledge, but he was Saul. And then what happened on a road in Acts 9? Saul's walking along and then Jesus is in his face. And he comes out of the encounter, Paul. So Paul's discipleship theology is, oh yeah, I can teach you all the things. I can give you all the information, but unless you come face to face with him, you're gonna stay Saul and not become Paul. You see, God did not become a man to improve our lives. He actually came to make us like him. And so the goal of beholding is not just to behave like Jesus, it's actually to become like Jesus. You know, my grandmother, um, those of you who don't know this story, you're welcome, you get this for free in the second service. My great-grandmother was a full-blooded Chinese lady. My great-grandfather was a red-headed Scottish man. And so my great-grandmother trained parrots and cockatoos to, to impersonate. It was really cool, right? Um, and so we would walk into her house and then my grandma's house, her daughter, and there would be these cockatoos and parrots like, Polly, what a cracker, Polly, what a cracker. Now they could impersonate me, but they can't become me. So when we settle for behaviour modification, when heart transformation is available, we become churches full of parrots. When we reduce discipleship to the acquisition of information, we are falling short. Learning is a very, very important part of the discipleship process. But if that information does not lead to us beholding Jesus, it will fall short. We will have a room full of maybe even souls. Do you know that we're the most informed generation there has ever been? But are we the most transformed into Jesus' image? There are some who would say the church looks more like the world than it ever has. So this creates a problem because then we don't have the solutions that the church and the church is meant to have for the pressure cooker we are living in in society. We've got gender fluidity. We've got questioning the sanctity of marriage. Did you know that Alpha Gen is the first generation ever to be raised in a culture where there is no absolute truth? According to the government of our land. We don't have in our culture sanctity for life. If your baby is an inconvenience, you can have that baby on the day it is due and leave it unassisted to die. So if we only live in behaviour modification, when we're in our workplace or our school and we bump up against people the Lord loves who are deceived in this way, if we haven't seen monkey say, monkey won't know what to do. And it leads to a problem because unless we're becoming like Jesus, we will actually not speak when He needs us to or we will speak and we won't sound like Him. 
But when we behold Jesus in our life groups, in our worship services, in our daily devotions, in our kids' ministry, in our youth ministry, when we're sitting at the traffic lights, I can just look at Jesus for a couple of minutes. I can turn the eyes of my heart towards Him. Then you can trust the transformation the Holy Spirit's doing in you, which means you will walk like the one who is the way, the truth and the life. And when you speak, you will sound like the one who is love. So you're not in your university going, oh, am I truth today or am I love today? You are truth and love running together because you've become like Jesus. Think about Jesus at the well. He had to speak to the issues in the woman's life. He called her out on her husband's or lack thereof and the bed she was sleeping in. That's truth. But because He was love, she received it and instead of hiding behind a tree, she went and said, you gotta come meet this Jesus. He just told me everything I've ever done. Even in that statement, shame had come off her life. So instead of being like, you gotta come see this guy who told me. You gotta come see this Jesus who told me everything I've ever done. No shame, because she met truth and love running together. And we, when we behold Jesus, get to walk the same way. Paul says we're being transformed into the same image. Let's drill down there for a moment. Transformed, you all know, is this word metamorpho. It's where we get our word in primary school, metamorphosis. It's the caterpillar being transformed to a butterfly. It's an unrecognisable state. It's not a one degree little transformation. It's like I was one way and now I'm a completely different way. I was Saul ravaging the church and now I'm Paul building the church. And he says, we're being transformed into this image, which is the word econ, which were coins marked with Caesar's image that gave the coin its value and its authenticity. Now, Hebrew Old Testament word we've already spoken about, Genesis 1.27 equivalent, Salem. So we've got econ, we're being transformed from one state completely into another one, back into our Eden-like state before face-to-face intimacy was broken. We can once again look to a face to tell us who we are. We're not like a merman, like, who am I? We find out who we are by looking at Him. And then we can walk in confidence in our world. So here's the thing. Not only do we become what we behold, we actually reproduce what we behold. You know, in Revelation um, 19, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it says, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. This is why it's only the church beholding Him that can become the transformed bride betrothed to Him. Notice the Bible says that the bride made herself ready. How does the bride ready herself? How do we become the bride that Revelation 19.8 describes? It says she's dressed in fine linen, that she's bright and pure. Think about this bride being dressed in linen for a moment. 
God gave Moses the instruction that the priests in the Old Testament were to be dressed in linen. Come again with me to King David. We all know he was dancing in front of the ark in a linen ephod. He was a king, he wasn't a priest, but he saw himself as a priest, as part of the priesthood of believers. So he put a linen ephod on and he danced before the presence of the Lord. Then all the way in the end of the book, the bride, us, the priesthood of believers, once again in our linen. Why linen? Because you don't sweat in linen. This won't be about our own effort. This transformation is completely fulfilled by Holy Spirit. Our role is to behold. Holy Spirit's role is to transform. You could put it this way. Holy Spirit is waiting. He's waiting. Are they gonna look at Jesus? Are they gonna look at the Father? Are they gonna look? Oh, he's instigating. They missed it. Oh, he's calling them again. Are they gonna see it this time? And we look at him. We let every other distraction fade away and Holy Spirit's like, go time. Now I start hovering and shifting and transforming in their hearts and making them like Jesus, but I can't do my role until they behold. It says the bride will be in linen bright and pure. Where have we heard bright and pure before? Moses. He literally became bright and pure, glowing with supernatural beams of light. How? Face to face. So what if the way we become the bride that's betrothed to him is we look at him and we're bright, we're pure, we're dressed in the garments he's given us because he's washed us clean. And then Jesus can return and we can be part of that marriage supper I don't know if you long for that day like I do, but I think it's time the church desired to be the bride in his heart again. You know, Paul is actually writing to a corporate body. This is why at the start of verse 18, he says, and we all. Often in our culture, we read this I, 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 me, me, me. And there should be times, Matthew 6 teaches this, that we should lock ourselves away in the secret place and commune with the Lord. But this is talking about corporately, that we should behold the Lord. That when we come together, that the teams, the preachers, all the people who are serving us are creating an atmosphere where we can behold the Lord. Where we can look at Jesus, because that's what transforms us. You know, I love this quote. It says, Jesus is not a polygamist. He is not looking for a million brides who love him individually. He is looking for a single corporate bride, a people who've been formed together to be his companion. I think most of us in this room would say the church is in some kind of a transition, the global church. I really sense we're at that moment where the Lord is visiting us in such a special and a powerful way that we have that choice. We're not quite sure what's on the other side. Caterpillar in a cocoon has no idea it's about to become a butterfly. We've got this thick darkness before us. We've had a shaking. We're seeing fire. We're seeing signs and wonders like we've never seen them before, but we're not quite sure what's on the other side. So we've got a choice. We can fall back 
and we can keep on creating golden calves or we can step into the unknown and become the bride that exists in his heart. And so because we're in this season, I really sense the importance that we must behold the right thing in the process of becoming the new thing. You see, if we don't behold God, we will measure success or Christian maturity based on what we do behold. Let me say that again. If we don't behold God, we will begin to measure success and even Christian maturity on what we do behold. What do I mean? When we measure success by gazing at Instagram, Snapchat, and the talk, we may not literally become a post, but we will have to live into the fullness of our false selves suffering with imposter syndrome, all the while sacrificing authenticity on the altar of approval because we're always ready for that snap so that we can post, watch the clock tick until the lights start pouring in and make sure you keep your filters on at all times. When we measure success by gazing at our own navels or self-help principles, we may not literally become a navel, praise the Lord. We may not become a guru, but we will create a God in our own image, projecting a big us onto the world, a God who thinks like us, rules like us, loves like us, and we will sacrifice His kingdom on the altar of our own kingdom. When we measure success by gazing at our neighbour, the co-worker in the next office, the perfect mum at drop-off, the church down the street, the pastor with the bigger church, or the friend who always just seems to get it right. We won't become them, but we will forfeit our own souls and our God-given individuality and calling on the altar of comparison. And then we're gonna go, but why God don't I ever experience the abundant life you promised me? When we measure success by gazing at the leadership principles of the world and the structures of man. I may not become Steve Job. We may not become Apple or Microsoft or Google. But we will become CEOs and managers of organisations in our approach with hirelings and employees, all the while sacrificing our kingdom identity as the family of God on the altar of growth and success. But... this is where it gets good. But when we gaze at Jesus, I mean, you know, not reading about Jesus, that's good. But I mean, meditating on Scripture. You could spend a year in Matthew or John, my fave, and look at Jesus' responses. Look at how He walked. Look at how He talked. You gaze at Jesus, we begin to take the long way to our destination at the promptings of the Father to speak to men and women. Society will tell you, you shouldn't be talking to them. And then Holy Spirit will reveal their most shameful, deep, dark secrets. And as we communicate that insight, it will be so drenched in love. They will not hide in shame, but they will tell everyone, you gotta meet this Jesus. When we begin to measure success by looking at the man, Jesus, then when one of our inner three, who's been there in your most vulnerable moments, even in your mountaintop moments, when they betray you and deny you, not once, not twice, 
but three times. Yet when you see them come jumping out of a boat with their extra personality, with their foot stuck in their mouth, they are, you're going to be able to walk in forgiveness and still choose to build ministries upon them and with them, not withdrawing into your shoulder because I got hurt. When we gaze at Jesus, we won't see our city or our world or our nation as our enemy. We won't see them as humanity with a woke agenda, even while they're busy deconstructing the church. But we'll be so moved with compassion. Oh, they're just sheep without a shepherd. And as we look to our city, if only I could gather them like a mother hen gathers her chicks. When we gaze at Jesus in worship, though uneducated, though simple, though unqualified, though faltering all the way to the altar, in His presence, boldness from Holy Spirit fills us and people will say they have surely been with Jesus. I can tell by their glow. And when we gaze at Jesus in the place of prayer, as we face the dark night of the soul, and our closest intercessors have fallen asleep again. In the press and the pressure of having to do what we know God has called us to do, despite the loss and the pain, we're able to pray, not my will, but Yours be done, to pick ourselves up, to put one foot in front of the other, not walk heavy, so I consider it a joy to pick up my cross and follow You. Oh, when we turn our eyes upon Jesus, when we look full in His wonderful face, the things of earth that we measure success by grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. And in the process, you're becoming more like Jesus. Every encounter, every glance, every prayer, every song, every moment looking at the Scriptures. In fact, I think you look more like Him than 30 minutes ago. You know, earlier in our service, we have these beautiful moments where we open the altars and we come and we receive ministry. I love that we do that as a family. But I'm gonna open the altar now so you can come and minister to Jesus. Oh, how it would bless His heart to see a full altar just come to fix their eyes on Him, to bless Him, to worship Him, not for His benefits, but because we know if we just behold Him, I'm gonna be more like Him when I go to school tomorrow. I'm gonna be more like Him when I go to work tomorrow. I'm gonna be more like Him as I Sabbath, woo! <laughs> So as the team leads us, I wanna invite you. Why don't you get out of your seat? Why don't you just fix your eyes on Him? Why don't you minister to Him? Why don't you bless His heart?
make me 